Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Aaron. Hi, everybody. I'm Aaron. I am a compulsive overeater. I'm going to pass a sheet of round of my pictures because, as I like to say, nobody believes me anymore. But, oh, and happy birthday. It's been wonderful walking this road with you. Um, But when I came into these rooms, I was well over 300 pounds. Um, I kind of choose to believe the number was 320, but if I'm entirely honest, what I remember is standing on a scale looking down, and the first number was a 3, and the third number was a 9, and I don't know what the number in the middle was. Um, Because all that I focused on when I was in my disease was at least I'm not 300 pounds, and if I saw a number that went over 300, that set off the alarm bell that would then drive me into anything it takes, no matter what I have to do, I have to fix this now. And I would go into overdrive mode, um, looking for a diet, looking for something. I'd join a commercial diet program. I would go buy a book. I would sit with my computer and I would make massive spreadsheets which showed all of the multiple different meal plans and programs I would have to follow depending on what weight I wanted to be and whether I wanted to be super skinny or whether I wanted to be big and buff or however I wanted to do it. And I could usually follow those or stay on that path based on my own willpower and my own fear for about six weeks, which is about how long it would take me to lose somewhere between 20 and 40 pounds. And then the number would be under 300. And my brain would say, see, it's fine. It's easy. You've got this. You can be whatever size you want. Don't worry about it. And I would go back to eating however felt normally or naturally. And I went and did that song and dance um, pretty much for the first 30 years of my life. Um, The first part is uh, if you don't identify with the problem that I had, my solution to it is not going to mean much to you. I come out of a big book tradition, and one of my favorite stories is one that's told by Joe and Charlie, where when Bill W. and AA finally got off of alcohol, he would start going out and telling people, oh, I figured it out, it's God, I figured it out, it's God. No, it's great, all you got to do is get God. And he came back one day to Dr. Silkworth, who had helped him put together the addiction side of this And he says, have you heard? I've been out there. I've been working with people. I've been trying to spread the message. And the doctor said, oh, I've heard what you've been getting up to. Has it ever occurred to you that none of those people uh, are going to listen to a word you say unless they believe that you actually were a full-blown alcoholic? And so my job here today is, as much as I love standing up at a podium and everybody looking at me and I get to talk, um, my job here today is to share my story for those whose disease looked like mine and who are looking for a solution to the problem that I had. So this is the problem that I had. From a very young age, um, food could take over every ounce of attention that I had. My earliest memory of this disease showing up was I was about four or five years old and I got invited to a birthday party. And at one point, we were at a park and we all got taken to a table and we sat down and we had the cake. 
and everybody and myself, we all ate our slices of cake. And then all the other kids said, hey, great, let's go over to that jungle gym and play. And I thought, why? I'm ha- why can't we just have more cake? Why do I have to go over there? Over there seems really, really far from what I want to do right now. Um, and from that moment, like four or five years old, I felt different than everybody else. And it wasn't that big a problem. Adults showed up. They said, why don't you want to play with the other kids? Or, oh, let's go over here and let's try it. And, but over the course of my life, uh, part, well, as time went on, I started to learn that I was having a very different experience from the people around me. It didn't show... When I was very, when I was very young, I had an older brother who, three years ahead of me, he started to get heavy. And part of our dynamic, actually, was I was skin and bones, and he was fatso. We each took on those roles, and we would insult each other. He would call me skin and bones, and I'd feel really hurt, and I would call him fatso, and he would feel really hurt, and this is how we fought. Then I hit 11 years of age and started going through puberty, and all of a sudden, pounds started to show up. I remember being taken to the doctor by my grandmother, and she asked the doctor in front of me, what do we do about that spare tire he's got around his middle? Now, I don't know if anybody, I don't know what everybody else's disease was, but I can tell you from experience, there is no better time to gain weight than puberty. You will never find a more loving, accepting, and understanding group of people about body issues and, and, and sense of self than other adolescents. Um, no, it was terrible. I... I started to take on this identity that I'm the fat kid. And then I had to start making choices in my life about what am I going to do about being the fat kid. I started, when I watched movies and there was a fat kid in the movie, I would identify with him. I started, I realized telling jokes was a good way to get by, but I wasn't going to be a clown. I was going to tell very intelligent jokes. I was going to be very, very witty and I was going to be very kind of cutting and dry. Um, I just decided that. I, there, I would look at some actors who were heavy and they clowned around all the time and I'd say, no, 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 I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be made fun of, but I do want people to like me, so I'll, I'll use the humor thing. Um, I grew up on fast food. I grew up constantly being late to school and my parents' solution was, well, let's go through the drive through and we'll get you stuff. I grew up in a family that had a lot of weight problems in it. I watched my mom go through diet after diet after diet. And... Um, when I started to gain weight, what happened to me was people would start coming to me with all of the things that had failed for them. They would hand me books. They would hand me articles. They would hand me papers. They would say, well, I tried this, so you try it. Well, I tried this, you try it. And at a certain point, I think what started happening was I wasn't so much being told, here's how you lose weight, as kind of being put through the paces of realizing I was never going to. And then when I was about 13 years old, I got the speech we are fat people. It's just our lot in life. We grow up and we, we, we have to deal with it and we have to own it and we have to embrace it and other people get to be thin and other people get to have this or that but you're just going to have to accept that this is the way you are. So I went out into the world carrying this identity of being the fat guy. Um, I spent a lot of time alone. I spent a lot of time isolating with the food. I never thought of myself as going on binges, but when I look back, I realized that at about 9 or 10 o'clock at night, I would go out to a restaurant to eat a second dinner and sometimes even stop at a fast food place on my way home. 
I can remember falling asleep feeling like the food was just right here, right at the top of my throat. Like I was so full, stuff hadn't even, couldn't even finish going down into my stomach. And I would fall into bed and pass out. But when I came to the rooms, when people said going on binges, it never, never clicked. I never thought, well, I'm a hardcore binge eater. No. I never thought of myself as someone who snuck food. But my alarm would go off or I would happen to wake up at 8 or 7, whatever it was, and realize I had a very short window of time to rush out, get in my car, and get to the fast food place that only served breakfast until a certain time and get that breakfast. And then I, I would, I have to share because this, I think it's a common experience, but I would get the breakfast plus another one because I could never pick which two sandwiches I liked better, so I might as well have both. Then it's really good. You order one with coffee, one with orange juice, and then the person behind the counter knows you're not drinking both of those because that would be disgusting. So, and then you get two of the sides, which was another bonus. I would get home and all of that stuff would already be eaten in the car on the way home. And then I would throw all of the trash away. And then at some point, maybe a family member or a friend calls up and says, hey, do you want to go out and get something to eat for breakfast? And I would say yes. I didn't sneak my food. I kept my car clean. Nobody asked me if I'd already had breakfast. I also started negotiating my way through the day. Because when they ask me if I want to go to breakfast, I say, I'm just going to go drink coffee, sit, and talk to them. Except by the time they're picking me up, I'm thinking, I'm just going to have coffee and toast. And we're driving down the road, and I start thinking, I'm going to have coffee, toast, eggs. By the time I'm walking in the restaurant, I've already made up my mind. I'm going to order what I normally order, and I will skip lunch. And I'll just keep negotiating my way through that all through the day. I did like going out to eat with people because if I could order something that was the same size and amount as them, I felt like, you see, it's a mystery. I don't know why I'm heavy either. I honestly don't. And I would sometimes it would come up and I would say, I don't know. Look, I'm eating the same thing as you. It's my third meal of the day and it's your second, but I'm eating the same as you, so I don't know why I'm this heavy. Doing this... Um, I need to come up with a way. So here's, uh, here's what I'll say. Here's what happened to my life because I was acting that way. I stopped caring about any of my career goals. I didn't pay any attention to the conflicts that were coming up in my life. I didn't pay any attention to my... I didn't see my life as something that I was living. I saw my life as something that I was enduring, something that I was just trying to survive. Because I was always looking for a reason to eat Every single conflict I had in my life was monumental. I never had a small little skirmish at work. I never had a tiny little disagreement with somebody. They were always full blown. Um, at one point, uh, I've always wanted to be a writer. Since I was a very small child, uh, one of my first like dreams was, oh, I want to be somebody who writes a book and people would read it. Um, at some point in my life, someone said, oh, you know what's great for that? There are these places, they're like buffets. You pay them one amount of money, they'll let you sit there for six or seven hours, and you can just eat as you like, and you can sit at the table and work. It's a great place to study. It's a great place to write. I would go there, and I would spend those six or seven hours having wonderful conversations with myself like, wait, did those people come in before me or after me? Have they gone back for seconds yet? Because if they've gone back for seconds, I can go back for seconds. Does that guy, the guy who works here, does he notice how many times I've gone back for food? And it turns out that when I'm sitting there with all of those mountains of food and I'm, that's what I'm thinking about, I don't have a lot to write about. I'm not feeling my emotions, so how am I going to process them and use them as a creative force in my life? No, I'm just eating. And then at the end, I'd feel bad about myself, and I'd get up and I'd close my empty notebook, get in the car, and go home. 
That was my life. That was my entire life. The other thing about this disease, I used it for cover a lot. In my disease, I never... How do I say this? First of all, I identified as a fat guy, so dating was already complicated because dating was not about me meeting another person and enjoying them and getting to know them and connecting with them as another human being. Dating was about proving that I could do this even though I'm a fat person. Proving to the world that I'm still attractive or I'm still valuable. This turned out to be cover for me because that, because that was how I was thinking all the time. When people broke up with me and my disease, no matter what they told me, the reason they broke up with me was because I'm fat and they're shallow. Therefore, I have a right to be mean to them because they're a lower human being and I'm a victim and the world doesn't understand me. So people would say things like, I don't think we have similar life goals or we don't like to do things together. And I would say, yeah, okay, it's because I'm the fat guy. They would say, I'm moving to the other side of the country and I don't like doing long distance. And I'd say, I get it. You're moving to the other side of the country because I'm a fat guy. Like you're willing to go that far to get away from me. I'll be honest with you, I had one person tell me my last boyfriend called me to say he's HIV positive so I'm not sleeping with or dating anybody right now. And my brain, faced with that information, said, I get it, it's because I'm fat. All through my life. It was a giant smokescreen. So, by the time I hit 30, I had no career. I had no family of my own. I didn't have a wife. I didn't have uh, kids that I had to take care of. I was kind of just floating through the world. I was living rent-free in a family member's house as I tried to make some stab at a, at a career in the entertainment industry. Um, I realized I hated the career that I had before, which had to do with computers, and I'd sworn off ever taking another computer job, and I would only take jobs that had to do with either theater or film or television. Um, a job came up that was theatrical, which was the opportunity to go on tour as a stagehand with a traveling circus. And I looked at it and I said, no, I couldn't go on. I couldn't run away with the circus, could I? And my family looked at me and said, well, you don't have any kids and you don't have a wife and you don't have a mortgage and you're kind of looking for work. I mean, if you can't run away with the circus, we don't really know who can. <laughs> so I did. I signed up. I applied. I got, I got accepted. I did the interview and they flew me out and I started living on a train traveling around the country with a circus. This was a wildly addictive lifestyle. And, um, you know, if you have the opportunity, I recommend it, but it's not fun. <laughs> This is what happened. This is the beginning of my journey into this program. I traveled with that circus. Um, it's the ultimate geographic. A geographic means I'm going to move to another place where my problems can't find me. I was convinced that if I was changing cities every week, my problems would just give up and leave me alone. They did not. At the circus, I found the exact same people that I thought I had left behind, and I still had all of the same bad problems. It was delightful in that people there were a little bit less interested in changing each other. Like, if you had character defects, they'd be like, cool, I got character defects too, let's go. And it would just erupt on each other. It was like, cool, hey, we're all accepting. We're all stuck on this. Um, it was a very hard labor job to the point where I could eat 10,000 calories in a day and I was actually still losing weight and building muscle when I did it, which is not helpful for my disease because I'm still not paying attention to my life. And what that looks like is I wound up on the other side of the country where an ex-girlfriend of mine had moved to. 
And we decided it would be very romantic since I was only in town for this one weekend to hook up. Got a hotel room, hooked up. One month later, I'm in a completely different state and I get a call and she's, I get the text. First of all, we have to talk. Always means good things. I call her up and she says, I'm pregnant and it's yours. I suddenly think to myself, I think God is trying to tell me something. There's a, cha- there's a passage in the big book. It says that when we are in our disease, we are self-will run riot. To me, what that means is I'm going to find the solution to every one of my problems using my magnificent brain. Obviously, being completely out of control and just doing whatever comes into my head was not the answer because here's here's something happening to me that I didn't want to have happen. So, as the big book says, we become either more demanding or more compliant as the case may be. I swing over and I become super good boy. Suddenly, I I make my plans to leave the circus. I go back into the career I hated because I can make more money there and it's my job to send somebody to college now. Uh, The woman did not like living with her family on this side of the country, so we flew her out and she moved in with me and mine. We had the baby and I ran around for a year of my life playing super dad. Everything that I was doing was to show up and be of service to this little girl that I was responsible for. At one point, I found myself holding her in my arms and realizing the thought that came to mind was, I can get you through junior high. I might even be able to get you through high school. I was doing all right in high school. I was getting friends. I had a a social circle. I felt like I knew what my life was about then. But about the time you turn 18, I'm not going to have anything to give you. I have no adulthood to give. I have no adultness. I really didn't understand life once high school was over. And that shook me. It's a very hard thing to raise a kid with somebody that you're madly in love with and you're completely devoted to. It is impossible to do it with somebody you can't stand. And me and this woman, we're not in a relationship. We were both very clear that we're here for the kid and we're trying to do better than our parents did with this kid, but we weren't together. So we kind of had all the worst things about a marriage and none of the things that made a marriage worth it. And the fights kept happening. I moved out of the house. Um... I moved to a different city, started, you know, we had a visitation schedule. Finally, I get the message from her that says, I'm going to move back to the other side of the country with my family because I hate it here. And I say to her, great, leave the baby. You can go wherever you want, but I'm, I'm here to show up for this kid. And what I'm feeling in my side is this kid is my purpose. This is the only thing I've got going. I need to say also, my weight is skyrocketing at this time. I am shoving candy. I am shoving, you know, we go out to big family meals. I am ballooning up. And you know what? Nobody cares. Because when you're super dad, nobody cares how much weight you're carrying around. You're showing up for the kid. It's fine. We're headed for a court case. I ask my family for money. We get it together. We go uh, get a DNA test done for me and the baby. I'm going to walk into court and I'm going to say, here's my declaration of paternity, my name on the birth certificate, here's the DNA test, here's all the, all the payments I've made, here's all the documents. I'm this kid's father and I want full custody. When the DNA test comes back, I am not the father. I think to myself, I really do think God is trying to tell me something. And it's not what I thought he was trying to tell me before. 
But I also have this one problem. I like my brain. I rely on my brain for everything. I am an intellectual strategy guy, even in program. My sponsor told me one day, you can't be too stupid to work the 12 steps, but you know what? You could be too smart to work them. So watch out for that. I have lost complete confidence. I could not understand. First of all, it never crossed my mind that somebody would lie about something like that. Second of all, it never crossed my mind that I would fall for a lie like that. And once somebody, once you realize someone's been lying to you about something so big, you start to see there's all these other lies that have been coming along the way. And you suddenly realize, this person's been lying to me since day one about everything. I went to see my outside help, and I said, I actually don't trust my own brain anymore. And I don't know what you do if you don't trust your own brain. Luckily, my outside help believes in the 12 steps. And she says, I know what you do. Let's start talking about groups that you could go to. So we started talking about support groups and 12-step groups that I might qualify for. If you've been following the story, I qualify for quite a few of them. I found this one website. Somebody's told me what it was. It was Share or Claire. I don't know. It, was, it happened to list every 12-step group that meets in the L.A. area. And there was an OA meeting that took place two blocks away from my house the, mor- the next morning. So the next morning, I got up earlier than I ever get up, 9 a.m. on a Sunday. I walked two blocks to this meeting. And the thought that was going through my head was, fine, I'll take care of the weight, too. But when I came into this program, I have to be honest, I did not come for the vanity. I literally couldn't figure out what I was going to do with my life. I had no purpose. I had no, I had nothing left. And I was literally thinking, well, if this does, like, you can't kill yourself until you try everything, so I'm going to try this. So I walked into the rooms, and I found all these people who were very happy and who were reading this little blue book. And when they, when they read the book, they, they took turns reading it paragraph by paragraph. And afterwards, uh, they went around and they shared about what they got from the reading. And they were excited about it. And they were happy about what, what it was. And they were happy about what it was trying to give them. And I hated every single one of them. <laughs> and I was really looking forward to figuring out what was they were so happy about so that I could then take that and leave and not have to come back to these meetings. They said try out six different meetings. So I tried out six different meetings. I audited the program. Um, I was still trying to figure it out. I was still trying to just hear the secret. Maybe there's a diet that I need. Um, I was talking to my outside help about it. Uh, They were pitching this thing called Thanksgiving in the Park, which we do every year. And they, uh, they said, why don't you come by Thanksgiving in the Park? It happens early in the morning before Thanksgiving. And I said, yeah, but if you get together with a bunch of overeaters and talk about not overeating, doesn't that ruin Thanksgiving? So I skipped it which then sent me to what my first sponsor called the Bermuda Triangle, this trio of holidays that happen at the end of every year. And he says, people get lost in there. (laughs) I came out the other side of New Year's, still eating like crazy, complaining to my outside outside help. I don't know what's going on. I'm still eating. I'm still eating. She says, well, do you still go to those meetings? And I say, I was checking them out, but, you know, they wanted one of these Thanksgiving in the park deals. And I was like, eh. Um, She said, have you ever heard of a 30 and 30? I said, no. She says, go to one meeting every day for 30 days. And I said, okay. So I started going to one meeting every day for 30 days. This was at the beginning of the year. 
Um, during that time, it suddenly became very important that I find a sponsor. So I found one. I tracked him down. I stalked him. I would go to, I'd ask him, you guys, you guys know where this guy goes? He's like, oh, I think he goes to that Monday night meeting. I went to the Monday night meeting. He's not there. Um, I say, wait, guys, wasn't there supposed to be a guy here? In the, you know, oh, no, no, no. He stopped coming here a week ago. Like, where, where did he go? Um, finally tracked him down, asked him about the sponsorship, uh, told him a couple things about my food. Uh, and he said to get a big book, get an OA 12 and 12, and let, let him know when I got them. I did. He said, cool, we're going we're gonna to do what's called a food inventory. We're going to look at your food. I want you to come up with what your red light foods are going to be. Have you ever heard that term before? I said, no. He says, okay, red light food is anything which once you start eating it, you cannot stop. This is pretty much straight out of the doctor's opinion, which some people may have read in the big book. It's hard to find because it's in the, the little Roman numeral pages right before the ones, and most of us like to start where the real numbers are. But it'll explain to you that we have an abnormal physical reaction when we eat certain foods. For an alcoholic, that food is alcohol. But in OA, what it means is each one of us has to figure out what are the foods that once we start eating them, we can't stop eating them. Even though we don't feel good when we eat them, even though we know that we've had enough, even though we, we don't like the effects they have on our body, we still find ourselves reaching for them no matter what. He told me this and I said, I don't need, he said, call me in a week when you have the list. I said, I don't need a week. I can tell you right now. And I listed four things. And he says, cool, write those down on a piece of paper or write them down in an email or a text. Send them to me. Document it. Make it real. And then we'll start, we'll, we'll, we'll come up with what your absence is going to be. And it's going to include those things. Came up with the absence that I want to have three meals a day. One plate is one meal. Um, we set that. It was good. Coming up on the end of January. Uh, he kept asking me, so when are you going to start your absence? Because what was happening was in my early program, I would go to the meetings. I, I would push myself. I'd get to about 10 or 11 o'clock at night on my food plan. And then I would go, eh, tomorrow, and go out and have whatever I wanted. So February comes. I He calls me up at some point and he says, what are you, when are you going to start your abstinence? And I said, uh, I'm aiming for February 2nd. And he said, that's an interesting date. Why February 2nd? And I said, because uh, it's like we have that saying, we only have one day at a time. And I'm going to be like that Bill Murray movie where I'm just going to live Groundhog's Day over and over again. That'll be my abstinent day and I'm just going to stay in it forever. And he goes, that's really clever. Why don't you just stop eating now? It's February 1st. It was 8 o'clock at night. I was standing in my kitchen. I knew tomorrow was my absence date, so I could eat whatever I wanted. And a little tiny voice said, if you go to sleep right now, you have one day. And that was the start of my program. So I started my absence that night by going to sleep. That's what recovery looked like on day one. Went there the next day, got a chip. Now that I've stopped eating the foods that are hurting me, I became suffused with golden light and I never again had a negative emotion or another problem. I got really pissed off at everything and everyone. The only thing that kept me going was that I had a room I could go to and say, I'm not having that much fun with this, but I think it's going to work, so I'm going to try it. The only thing that kept me going was that I could call this man who was my sponsor every single day and leave a three-minute voicemail, and he would listen to them. 
I've had sponsees and I've had fellows in programs say, my sponsor never picks up the phone. I talked to their voicemail. Well, before I came to program, nobody was going to listen to those voicemails. I could have left maybe two before I got a text message that says, please stop calling me. This guy listened to him. And he started taking me through the steps. I'd figured out that I can't do it myself. After 30 years, I had never solved the problem of why my body is not the shape I want it to be. I'd found a place where I could go to say, hey, I need you to tell me how to do this. Then it came down to this third step thing. I started praying as I was doing my step work, and I actually called my sponsor up one day to brag about it. I said, I'm, I've started praying. He goes, oh, good for you. What are you praying about? I said, my prayer is, God, please show me what my natural body looks like. Before I was depressed, before all the overeating, just show me what my natural body looks like. He said, that sounds like a clever way to say, God, make me thin. I said, it is clever, and thank you for noticing that. He said, how about this? How about you pray for, to know what God's will is for your, you and your life and to have the power and the courage and the strength to carry it out? And I said to him, I don't want to pray for that. He said, why not? And I said, I'm terrified that God wants me to be happy but fat. In my disease, I will stay miserable. I will commit to misery until my body is the shape I have decided it should be. My sponsor said, this is step three. If God, if whatever it is, the thing that runs the universe wants that, could you really do anything about it? I said, yes. I still don't know what, but I think it, I don't know. I had a whole smart-ass answer for it, which is not funny anymore. So I took step three. Then I started doing something called an inventory. This is a fun thing where you get to go through a list of questions in the OA 12 and 12, and you get to write down everything you hate, all the things that, are mad, that you're mad about, all the things that you're scared of. You get to write down your sexual history. While I was doing my fourth step inventory, somebody said, you've got to keep going. These are the things that make you eat. I asked around. These are not the things that make me eat. The things that make me eat is I'm a compulsive overeater. But these are the things I eat over. And you know what? I can put them on paper and they become normal sized. Then I do a fifth step inventory where I read them to someone else. And that other person doesn't look at me and say, God, you really are kind of screwed up, aren't you? They look at you and go, yeah, exactly. That's life. That's what every human being deals with. Every human being gets pissed off. Every human being gets afraid. Every human being tries stuff out that turns out isn't a great idea and then has to go clean up the mess. Oh, let's talk about cleaning up the mess. You then get to go through this list. No, actually, I skipped two. After you look at all that, you get to look at what are the defects that really come up for you. Are you a liar? Are you a cheat? Are you a thief? You know, what are the things you're trying to get away with? And then in my program, the way my sponsor took me through it, you don't get to go to war with those things and you don't get to challenge them. You don't get to come up with a mental strategy just to do the opposite. No, you get to ask to have them removed, which means that when you go throughout your day now, you're not being tested anymore. You're not being told you better do this or you're out of program. What you actually wind up doing is going through your day and noticing when you have an opportunity to make a different choice. That request has been so important in my program, learning that I ask for what I want. I ask to maybe get rid of the dishonesty. Give me, show me the opportunity 
to be honest instead of dishonest, to be giving and generous instead of selfish and terrified. And once I've started doing that, then I can go around and clean up the messes that I've made. So then, thank you. After that, you're in what's called 10, 11, and 12, where you just get to go about living your life the way other people do. Trying to be a good person, knowing that you have the ability to clean it up if you don't. And somewhere along all of that, I wound up losing 116 pounds. I still don't know why. But it was because of this program, which didn't just give me a healthy body weight, but it also gave me back a purpose in life and a way to be of service to people. And I will forever be grateful for it. And I want to thank you all for letting me share about it. Thank you.